Welcome to Webinaki Windows. I'm your host, Donald Loring. Webinaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Webinaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Webinaki Windows is being brought to you by WERU in East Orland, Maine, in partnership with WMPG Portland, Maine. Today is the eighth show in our series of Unpacking Sovereignty. We will be talking with Professor Harold Prince and Professor Darren Renko. Professor uh, Harold Prince is an emeritus of Kansas State University, a native of the Le Netherlands. He is a distinguished and well-known Wabanaki historian. Professor Darren Renko is a member of the Penobscot Nation and an associate professor of anthropology and chair of Native American studies at the University of Maine. Last time in series seven, we discussed the John Dean letter uh, to governor and council and the impact of the eventual sale of the four townships. Today in our series, uh, in our number eight show, uh, we'll be talking about what happened following uh, the 1833 uh, uh, sale of the four townships. And so we're gonna move ahead a couple of years and hopefully we can, we can uh, cover the next hundred years. I don't know, but we'll see. Uh, so let's head out, let's head to 1835 and uh, we'll ask Professor uh, Prince to talk to us about that year. Harold? Yes, um, uh, good afternoon, uh, Donna and Darren uh, here from uh, the Kennebec uh, in Bath. Um, yes, one of the uh, elements of um, the worship of the Penobscot and other indigenous peoples, whereby the state of Maine uh, becomes the guardian uh, through acting through its uh, state appointment Indian agent, is the idea that um, Wabanaki people are unable really to take care of themselves as hunter-gatherers and that the game is ending and therefore they should settle down as uh, farmers, um, regardless of the fact that uh, we all know that when you're on an island in the river, uh, as opposed to on the mainland, uh, to get a plow or an oxen to the small islands is of course um, a, a challenge that wasn't the case for traditional crop farming, but the kind of farming that the state of Maine has in mind to settle them down um, as uh, small-time farmers um, is, in essence, part of an agenda to not only um, break down the tribe politically, economically, and culturally, but basically make them in terms of um, uh, a, a peasant, if you will, uh, a kind of an indigenous peasantry in Maine uh, with land is far too small to really become uh, even remotely successful. And so the Indian agent is now paid out of the money, the $50,000 that the four townships uh, yielded to the state of Maine, but that money is controlled by the state, the fund, and the interest out of that is part of the Indian fund. And out of that Indian fund, uh, a major cost comes, and that's that the tribe in essence is paying for the Indian agent, the bureaucrat appointed by the state. They have no say over who that person is. And that person begins to become the supervising eye uh, of the state to make sure that the tribe complies with the um, ordinances and regulations and, um, and other kind of legal 
issues that are emanating out of first Portland and then Augusta when Augusta becomes the capital of Maine. And so um, the census that we talked about the last time, the census is an effort by the state to take control over the demographics. Uh, it is also to limit the number of beneficiaries from the interest accruing from the sale of the four townships um, to make sure that this cost stay down. So the, the state benefits from the fact that the state, that the tribe remains small. So they can have surplus money to spend on all kinds of other thing, kind of things emanating from the $50,000 investment fund that the state manages. And then you get the, um, the allotment, basically tribal lands that are communal, communal, though that individual families have traditional family hunting and trapping and fishing sites. Uh, now they become uh, a quasi form of ownership uh, of private property or family owned property as opposed to tribal property, but the control of which is in the hands of the Indian agents. So in essence, what we see happening is a uh, breakup of the tribal communities and a separation sort of uh, from making them individuals as opposed to tribal members and, and just dispersing the tribal communities. And it seems to me that, that that was the ultimate goal is to assimilate so that they wouldn't have a tribe that they owed any sort of treaty obligations to whatsoever. So that's one of the things. And uh, Darren, do you have a comment on? Yeah, so, so I think, th thank you, Donna, and um, wonderful to be uh, joining you both today again. The, uh, the, the other critical movement, and this happens um, on, the, on the heels of what Harold, met, what Harold mentioned, around more Indian agent, you know, control and, um, you know, not reflecting the community's interest. You have, and I had hinted at this in previous shows that, you know, the, the land speculation parts uh, of the creation of the state of Maine were one part, and then the next part, and this, this follows a, a script of sorts, uh, is um, extraction and, um, and removal of key key resources. Um, what you have in in the Penobscot and Passamaquoddy homelands, and as well as uh, uh, Mi'kmaq and Maliseet, uh, as well, you have these um, you know real uh, pushes for extractions. A lot of it being timber, of course, uh, by the mid nineteenth century, uh, and then those large extractions, you have some notable, you know, and, and this is referenced in the, the Proctor report even, uh, as I was looking at it before this is, uh, you know, the, the tribes being, uh, trying to profit on this on the one hand, but also the, the, the huge impacts that this has on, on traditional, you know, the, the, the scale of this, this lumber activity um, really separates people from, from resources. Um, you know, in significant ways. First of all, you start to have really large uh, sort of booms of, 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 of logs on, say, on the Penobscot, you know, by the mid-1840s, uh, 1850s. And then, you know, I mean, it was there starting in probably in the 1820s as well. But in terms of scale, the scales up by the mid-19th century. Um, it's very disruptive to river riverine life uh, on a variety of levels, uh, 
uh, not only with fishing, but just a whole host of other gathering activities and, and the impacts on, on, the, on the river of, you know, basically floating, you know, large numbers of logs down river. Um, and then um, on, from, from there, and I don't want to progress the, the discussion, but, but I see this as connected as well. You have in Maine and in a lot of other places, you know, roughly in mid 19th century, to late 19th century, the closing of the commons, the implementation of, of hunting and fishing laws, uh, not only you know, for, not, for, for, for native people um, who are now firmly regulated by the state of Maine, um, but for non-native people as well. Although I, I think in terms of the, the you know, who, who it's meant to impact and who it's meant to kind of disrupt traditional lifestyle from, it is very clearly you know, another separation, which would mean, you know, part of the assimilation process is basically make it, and this is again, part of a script, make it impossible for people to practice, to practice their traditional cultures in their traditional homelands, shape, reshape the, the homeland itself in such dramatic ways that it becomes impossible uh, in many ways, uh, and, and, you know, th that in the forced, uh, sedentary, you know, having just the one village that you could live at, all of these things are, are, are moves of assimilation, but they are, they are quite purposeful. And you see this, you know, kind of again and again throughout the, uh, Americas and sort of these, the settler forced assimilation set of policies. Um, so I, I think that's also the structure that is very, uh, deliberate. In, in this, uh, with the Indian agents, as Harold mentioned, being the prime, you know, uh, authorities in Indian life uh, at this time, really take that taking hold with the um, with these disruptions and impacts on natural resources. Right. So uh, now these Indian agents, they were also used by Massachusetts, right before Maine became a state. Massachusetts had uh, signed Indian agents to control the Wabanaki lands. It's, I mean, uh, I've always thought, I always thought of the Indian agents only being uh, created by Maine, but that's not true because they were there with Massachusetts. And but you think that, uh, that Maine basically took that model with the Indian agents and just placed it onto Maine? Harold? Yeah, and they took it a step further, of course. Um, so uh, first you see that the Indian agent becomes a representative uh, from Boston because the distance, of course, uh, between Boston and the um, Upper Penobscot is huge. And um, the state of Massachusetts had a huge um, vested interest, not only in supervising Indian lands, but also what they call public land. And that had uh, incredible uh, resources, as uh, Darren was just referring to, in terms of timber. Timber um, was um, a, an extremely uh, valuable uh, resource uh, that uh, produced the kind of revenue that uh, Massachusetts and later Maine was craving uh, to pay basically their, uh, their, their cost of running the government, uh, other than taxes, would be selling off timber, of course, and other kind of natural resources. And so... Uh, taxes was always a problem. The taxation issue was always a problem, but selling timber was a much easier way of getting land or, or, or getting revenue or selling the land. But the timber in particular was important. So the Indian agent uh, in Massachusetts 
uh, was uh, to, on the one hand, keep a, a regulatory eye on the Penobscot people, but on the other hand, also on the uh, depredations by uh, squatters, but also by uh, white settlers uh, themselves who were uh, building uh, all kinds of dams, sawmills and the whole thing. And so state lands were um, suddenly uh, deprived of the best timber, the best um, pine trees for masts and spars for the, for shipping and so forth and so forth. So, um, but from that um, intervention, if you will, when Maine becomes a independent state in, in 1820, and then begins to um, keep an eye on the last four townships uh, on the mainland and uh, robs the tribe in essence of those four townships, uh, even before the sale happened, they were already selling off the timber on that land as a representative of, this, of, the, of Augusta. And so uh, the Indian agents themselves, not surprising because almost anybody in the Penobscot River Valley had some sort of direct or indirect uh, linkage to the timber interests. Uh, but many of the Indian agents were also timber speculators uh, or were part or whole owners of sawmills so it's in essence um, the fox that uh, that guards the uh, chicken coop uh, situation that's going on. Uh, there's an incredible uh, intertwinement of um, of private and public uh, interest is going on, uh, whereby the tribe is then becoming victim between um, uh, to a degree of the um, pressure that is placed on them. And perhaps also bribery efforts by the uh, by the state agents. Um, the term at the time that was being used is called a douceur. It's an incentive to do certain kind of things. And we do not know, with those kind of monies that are involved, to what degree people who are poor uh, or may have an axe to grind with someone that they may be um, compelled to sign something or agree to something that the majority of the tribe was not informed about. And so what you then see is a conflict emerging between the uh, governor, Adian, who is at Madawemkag, and uh, Lieutenant Governor John Neptune, who's uh, older and much more influential than Adian. Um, but John Neptune is much closer to uh, the residents of the Indian Asians, uh, often who are located either in Bangor or in Orono, um, or later in Old Town, and not in Madawemkag. So uh, Adian, Although he's the chief, uh, the, the governor, uh, he's in many ways outplayed by the Indian agent who was playing all kinds of games um, with the tribe. And that creates then that cleavage that is later uh, becomes famous uh, or infamous, I should say, as the old party, new party uh, controversy that uh, picks up uh, really in the early 1830s and then plays out on multiple other issues regarding the priest as opposed to the, the, the agent or a school or not a school, these kind of things. Yeah, Donna, also just following on that sure. uh, and to your original uh, point, because I, I totally agree with that, Harold. That's a great, <laughs> that's a great analysis of sort of these movements and uh, by the Indian agent. I, I mean, I think people have to keep in mind that, um, you know, very much what is different, right? So the Massachusetts Indian agent system as Harold mentioned, was much more trying to protect the the large uh, grants, the large you know like keep the peace in a way, uh, you know on on this sort of frontier zone. Um, by the time 
the state of Maine comes in and you get, so that was to protect the, 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 the interests of the land per se. When, when it moves towards extraction um, and, and, you know, I think your, your, uh, your, your listeners should, would know this, but, you know, this is 19th century uh, government uh, uh, operation. This is before the progressive uh, era of, of government reform. Um, and, you know, this, this uh, coming together of governmental and business interests were pretty dramatically um, corrupt in many areas uh, in the 19th century that you have, you know, the, 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 the state militias, um, you know, being the, the goons for, for uh, extraction um, um, interests uh, out West at this time, right? So, I mean, th- this, this, this notion that, you know, the government was there as a kind of, um, you know, keeper of the, <laughs> a neutral arbiter of uh, sort of the rule of law. Um, I think you very clearly see that the Indian agents are are very much caught up in the business interests and the you know quote unquote development interests of the state, uh, and they're responding to to those interests you know in the nineteenth century. So these the, so they're not they're clearly not. And if you if you think that they're like there to take care of and care, the Indians only, uh, that is uh, uh, greatly. Um, not what they're doing. They're 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 advancing interests of the state, um, which has this larger set of interests related to development and extraction. Um, and we see and you see that again and again. Um, you know, there's ebbs and flows. There are different personalities, of course, of, of these agents. But um, by and large, you know, once it gets more close closely aligned with the, the extraction game. Um, as opposed to the land grant speculation game of the sort of uh, settler society, you definitely have these, you know, strange bedfellows. I mean, I think we would see them maybe as strange now, but you know, then of uh, the the state government and you know the 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 capitalist you know extraction forces like these are working hand in glove um, against uh, uh, interests of anyone who's trying to live a. Uh, a subsistence uh, lifestyle on a landscape that had been managed by Wabanaki people for, you know, hundreds or thousands of years, right? That that had been, you know, managed in ways that are to support our way of life as Wabanaki people. Suddenly, you know, not suddenly, but over decades, right? You see this extraction, these various forms of extraction um, really reshape these landscapes, you know, akin to, um, you know, uh, Cronin's famous book, Changes in the Land, right? Where we see this even in, in and he, in his, 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 his book is, is, is saying this is happening in the 17th and 18th century in Southern New England. And then honestly, uh, a lot of the same dynamics don't hit Central and Eastern Northern Maine until this night, this part of the 19th century. So that, that reshaping of land and, and how that impacts our culture. And then the next phase of that is closing the commons and regulating when and how we, everyone can, but we as uh, native people can hunt and fish in our territory. Um, you know, by, the, by, the, the, by 1892, the state versus Newell case, um, we see that, you know, very firmly, you know, on the necks of, you know, uh, our our traditions of hunting and fishing, and and really subsisting in our in our homeland. So that 
<clears throat> brings up, uh, you know, back in those, in the 18, was it the late, I think it was the mid 1830s, 1836, 1837, maybe, I might, might be wrong, uh, when uh, the Removal Act was in place. Yeah, and, it, was, it, was, it was 1830, but the, uh, the actual implementation was 1837. Yes, Cherokee. okay. Yeah. So during this time, I think that these agents who were negotiating treaties with Penobscot, I think they were using that as some sort of leverage or a threat, you know, to say, look, the, the, the feds or Jackson is talking about moving tribes east of the Mississippi back, you know, back west. And unless you cooperate, uh, you guys will be on the list. And actually, I came across an act, a, a, a list in the special, I don't know if you've seen this, Darren or, or Harold, special collections where there was the list of tribes that were uh, on the removal list. And Penobscot was one of them. Yeah, yeah. One of the, uh, sorry, sorry, Darren, go ahead. Oh, no, I think I, I think I recall this. But with that list, I think what I saw was that that push for termination, though, in the in the 1950s, correct? Or was this? No, this was back, removal. Back this was removal. OK, this was removal. I, I had the site someplace. OK, oh, yep. I mean, not surprising. I, I think yeah. those threats were very, very real. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, one of the paradoxes is, of course, uh, in this uh, is that the federal, this is a federal issue, right? So the when Congress passes uh, the Indian Removal Act in 1830, just like it passed the Non-Intercourse Act in 1790, there was a U.S. Congress kind of thing. The state of Maine, in essence, has argued, and that's, of course, what we today are dealing with in terms of the Maine Indian Land Claims Settlement Act as a residue of the unique position that Massachusetts and later Maine took over, that they are exceptional to the, the status of uh, many other uh, tribal nations in the country uh, who are domestic dependent nations, as far as John Marshall is concerned, uh, with whom you can still sign treaties. That ends uh, in the United States in general in the 1870s. That's the end of treaty making period. But Maine, of course, uh, was careful to distinguish between what it did in uh, 1818, 1820, and what it did in 1833, because the 1833 thing was a sale, and it was not marked as a treaty, because by that time they knew very well that uh, U.S. Congress was much more powerful in 1830 than it had been in 1790. In 1790, U.S. Congress was still almost without any revenue, um, were very few departments, uh, it was a very weak uh, federal structure uh, because it was simply were no was no revenue. It was the, the structure was not yet in place. So the paradox that I mentioned earlier is that while Maine and earlier Massachusetts ignored uh, the Federal Non-Intercourse Act in the 1796 and 1818 treaties that then Maine took over in 1820, by virtue of the fact saying that that was the prerogative of the state and not of the federal government. Thereby, the, uh, the Indian Removal Act, which was a federal uh, law, would not really uh, pertain to state-recognized tribes that didn't have that kind of federal relationship. Now, that whole issue about the federal uh, state issues has never been entirely clear, which is obvious to this very day, right? In, to this very day, uh, the nations in Maine are dealing with a kind of a murky legacy in terms of who precisely has that authority, the sovereignty, if you will, 
uh, over the tribes. To what degree have the tribes retained the sovereignty? To what degree was that sovereignty um, in the possession of the state? Or had it been taken over by the uh, preemptive rights um, of the sovereign itself, which is the federal government and not uh, the state government in Augusta? So it's a complicated issue that, um, that, um, that has been with us in Maine uh, for more than 200 years now. Yeah. yeah, that's true. I just, you know, back to your notion of threat, Donna, I think um, uh, with, these, uh, <laughs> with these increased powers of the Indian agent and the destruction, you know, the, the, the kind of forcing into being small uh, farmers, you know, the sort of farmer uh, assimilation move, and then the uh, the reshaping of, of landscape. Um, of course, the you know the Indian agent also gets to assume more and more authority, right? By you know, if, if the tribes are more and more, if, if if individual families and citizens are unable to you know feed themselves in these traditional methods because of changing landscapes and changing access, right? That gives much more authority. Um, to Indian agents. I mean, that's sort of some of the context. And even if, even in, you know, I think one of the, one of the issues around how the four townships get kind of put on the, um, the, the chopping block in, in this so-called so, so treaty, not treaty issue is, um, you know, the threat or the withholding of particular food foodstuffs during a particularly difficult winter you know like these are these are very real threats to everyday survival that um become increasingly terse and um outrageous over time at, at various times by you know leading to this you know this overall approach that you know the indian is a second class pauper um, citizen that, you know, has very little rights, uh, has very little control over their own resources, literally the state managing and the Indian agent at, 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 at some whim, um, managing these resources that this creates this fairly dramatic and, and gross, you know, uh, distribution of power, um, with, with the Indian agent having uh, having a lot of power over the daily life of, of, of you know, native people at, at times that are very, you know, very difficult. Well, the key thing is, of course, that because they have, the native people have been declared imbeciles, right? And that means a, an IQ level of up to 50, I think. Uh, so it's about <laughs> half of national average of 100. Uh, so they're simply de uh, declared to be incompetent uh, in terms of managing uh, anything of their own affairs, uh, thereby, for, of course, forgetting that they have done, as Darren was just uh, indicating, you know, centuries, if not millennia, uh, you know, have managed their own affairs. And so um, the presumption has been, uh, and that becomes very powerful in the 19th century, uh, in the 1800s, is this idea of this natural incapacity on the part of indigenous peoples to progress. And so you get this kind of natural law, this idea about that, uh, just like in uh, later with the Darwinian theory of, um, of evolution, that in human evolution, that uh, they are destined to become extinct. They, they cannot make 
the, uh, the, the, the progress from savagery to civilization. They're inherently intellectually incapable of doing it, also emotionally incapable. And so therefore they are doomed. And in essence, that's why precisely when you see the, um, the passing of the Indian Removal Act uh, followed by the Trail of Tears in 1837, that's precisely when you see this kind of romantic uh, historical um, uh, literature emerging. You see it in the paintings, you see it in uh, poetry, uh, 1855, of course, the famous uh, Hiawatha, the Song of Hiawatha. And before that, uh, the leather stocking tales with uh, the last of Mohicans and so forth and so forth. So you get uh, in Maine, uh, the establishment of, um, in that same context, the, the Abbey Museum as Stone Age antiquities, right? So this idea that um, uh, indigenous peoples are part of prehistory uh, is very important. And then you get exactly at the same time the rise of the so-called Native American Party, which is another name for the Republican Party at the time, that begins to wrap itself into a fictional, largely fictionalized uh, indigenous um, um, culture. And they are forming these patriotic societies where in Native Americans cannot form part of, cannot become members of, but they are so-called um, uh, the improved order of the red man. So you get these kind of uh, patriotic societies, uh, only Protestant Americans who are not immigrants can become members of it. And they begin to create these tribes. So it gets very weird parallel universe of white men in these white patriotic societies wrapping themselves up in this kind of indigenous kind of uh, lore. Uh, not unlike that crazy QAnon shaman who was part of the um, uh, the, uh, the assault on US Congress, where you get this kind of weird stuff is going on that is just part of that mythology that passes for history and history that passes for mythology. The two things are completely wrapped into one thing, which is a missed history. And we're living it today, of course, when all these people who are talking about the originalist, uh, like um, a, a number of these lawyers today, is I think, are you actually aware of what the hell you are talking about as an originalist when you want to go back to the late 1700s at the formation of the United States when this democracy was not a democracy at all. Women could not vote and non-white people couldn't vote. That was a institutionalization of white supremacy. And the craziness from these, some of these lawyers who are linking themselves to the federalism, to the federalists of the late 1700s, early 1800s, is absolutely insane because these people have not studied history. They do not know what happened in the past, and yet uh, they pontificate, they use it, they use it in the most uh, egregious way to argue basically for the points that they're trying to make and have no knowledge whatsoever. It's absolutely dismal. And I would strongly urge, and that's actually what uh, Donna, what you just did uh, uh, a few days ago when you posted that, um, a conference at the University of Maine, you know, that here's a, a podcast that you just um, moderated um, on issues that are very important. People just don't know. They just make it up. It's fantasy upon fantasy upon fantasy without solid ground. And it makes me sometimes, after 40 years having worked here in Wabanaki country, it makes me utterly exhausted sometimes and frustrated because every time you have to set, tell the same story over and over, uh, this whole thing like about the great dying that was just had on NPR, that's well known. And yet every generation professes ignorance about it. It's just unbelievable.
So the, the, one of the things that I keep thinking about, and Darren, I think you brought it up. We're talking about the treaty signing. And uh, the, uh, when, we, when we signed the treaty, uh, we, were, we were recognized as sovereign because only sovereigns sign treaties. So when we signed the treaty, we were recognized by Maine as sovereign. After we signed the treaty, they treated us and they, as they said, we were guardians. So they took that guardianship role even when we were, you know, right after we signed the treaty. And it's like they, they sort of want, they want to do, uh, they want the land and, and they yeah. want all of the good stuff, but yeah. they don't want to recognize that the tribes are sovereign and that they, you know, that they deserve to be treated as an equal government. Right. Yeah. And I, th I think, that, you know, what's interesting and Harold brought it up too, the, the, the language in the, in the Murphy Tomer case, the uh, imbecility uh, of indigenous people. The, the irony of course, in that case, um, is that's about a, is about contracts and and yes. the, the decision is actually <laughs> yeah. well, well is the decision is actually even though we are imbeciles <laughs> yeah. we yeah. are beholden to a contract that uh, one of us signs uh, in a way that a child or an imbecile actually would not be you wouldn't sign a contract with an imbecile uh, you couldn't it wasn't legal even then right. even in the right. 19th right. century right. so, so the other thing too yeah, it's always it's always to have it both ways. I mean, right. that's that's what that's what is um, perverse about this. It, it is not, and and so they know that we're not imbecile. You know, you know what I'm saying. Like it's it's. I, I think there's this. Sure. It is just the the angle to drive the the thing through. It's it's in my opinion that's kind of the definition of evil because it's it's an obvious manipulation of a set of discourses and structures that people are like, well, we'll use this because it's to our, to our needs, um, whether we believe in it or not. I mean, this is, this is some very, you know, it, that's my reading of it. I'm not, you know, do, do I know the motivations of people, you know, 180 years ago? Of course, I can't possibly, but um, I don't even know the motivations of the people right now who live in my home. But that said, I would I, I do think like it's very clearly these contradictions again and again and again that are used to basically take things from us as Wabanaki people. And that's just one obvious example of it, right? So on the one hand, yeah, we're paupers. We we can't control our lands. Oh, oh, a contract case? Yeah, yeah, you can sign a contract. Otherwise, how is if, if it goes bad, how is a, a non-native person able to get what they need from you? You know, like it's 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 totally, totally slanted in just not <laughs> not for us. You know, I mean, yeah. it and, creates these two dual sort of mechanisms around. Right, right. And, you know, in the main constitution and, and you kind of picked this up, Darren, uh, where in Article 2 in 1819, the main constitution said uh, Article 2, Section 1. Every male citizen of U.S. is talking about uh, voting age or whatever, and upwards, excepting paupers, persons under guardianship, and Indians not taxed. What you know? If we were, why separate us from paupers right. and 
persons under guardianship. If they if they thought that we were truly got under their guardianship, yeah, they right. don't and they and the the constitution they they admit it right there. Yeah, no, and and like I said, it becomes you know a hint to this treaty thing on the one hand, but a very firm and very quick sort of resolution to you know, the, the kinds of racialized hierarchy that Harold was talking about that sort of motivates uh, a variety of political and, and religious and all sorts of things from in the 19th century, including the, you know, ongoing justifications for in, enslaving people, the ongoing, you know, I mean, all these things that, you know, lead to um, and are encompassed by the Civil War and then Reconstruction, you know, the things that happen with that, but it's also being mobilized around indigenous people. Again, you see in the closing of the frontier, quote unquote, and, and the end of treaty making in the West, right? Similar moves, right? Similar moves of, of justifications through racialized hierarchies and extractions and, and, and all, all sorts of things. So I think, you know, it's, it's so, you know, in the context of what is now known as Maine, you know, we see this happening in a particular style, the extractions, the Indian agents, um, you know, again, the closing of the commons, if I, if we push, push it later into the 19th century, happening, you know, on the heels of, and then allowing for even more dramatic extractions where the, you know, it becomes the, the booms become super mechanized by the end of the 19th century and into the early 20th century. But you know, closing the commons and, and preventing hunting and fishing for certain periods of the year um, also forces people into trade uh, type uh, economies more significantly. Wage labor becomes the primary means of support because all everyone has to do it to support themselves, right? They can no longer literally live off the land if they choose to do that. And so, you know, uh, in the particular case uh, in, from 1892, the um, you know, state versus Newell case, which is a, you know, a hunting rights, Passamaquoddy hunting rights case. And of course, in the treaties, there's all this rete retention of, of um, hunting and access in, in various forms of the Passamaquoddy treaties. And then the court's like, oh, yeah, that language is in there. But, you know, this, these treaties were signed with the Passamaquoddy tribe. And we don't, we don't think you're the, the, the same group of people that are the Passamaquoddy tribe. And then they just make up on the spot a, 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 <laughs> a, uh, uh, a, a legal doctrine that was never before or since mo mobilized. They're like, you're no longer the Passamaquoddy tribe because you can no longer make war and peace. And therefore, um, you know, you, are, you, you, you don't have this, the rights secured to you for, um, the, uh, the, in the, the, those hunting rights. So again, it's, it's that, that's a construct to have it both ways. There's no, there's no, <laughs> there's no condition in the treaty. Like you can't make, and I don't even know if that's actually true. Maybe the Passamaquoddies could have made war. I'm not saying they would have won in 1892, but I think a tribal council vote to go to war <laughs> was possible. I, you know, I, maybe there was a state law. I, I mean, it just, it's all just, total justification to not allow us to support ourselves and it has no sense of right or wrong to it no sense of um, rule of law it is a, a court just saying no <laughs> for the sake of it 
a, a, a quick comment, uh, if I may, Donna, about sure. what, um, what uh, Darren was just mentioning about the right to make war. Uh, what's fascinating is that in World War II, um, that uh, the, some of the Iroquois nations, the Tuscarora Mohawk amongst others, but also some of the Western tribes, they um, retained the prerogative to, to, to declare war themselves against Germany and Japan. So in other words, when uh, the United States, uh, after Pearl Harbor uh, in uh, December 1941, declared war first against Japan, and then because of the, the ally, alliance between uh, Japan and Germany, also declared war against Germany, that the, um, that the issue of the declaration of the, or the right to make a declaration of war had not been surrendered by the traditional Iroquois. Um, so um, the Iroquois then made a special issue of we hereby declare war against Germany and Japan uh, in that happened in early 1942. Uh, that was of course largely a symbolic act, but it was symbolic in the sense of they were underscoring a legal issue that they had not uh, become uh, subservient to the, to, to the United States, A, and B, that the conscription, uh, named the whole issue about that um, the federal government can raise an army by conscription, that if you're being, um, um, if you don't have the right to vote, uh, like in the state of Maine, that therefore, why would you then be uh, conscripted? So it became a principle, an issue of a principle uh, that's brought out, it had nothing to do with patriotism, had nothing to do with willingness to serve the country, but it had, it had to do with um, principles of, of legal rights uh, going back to trees. And so it's a very fascinating thing that uh, when, when Darren was just referring to the Passamaquoddy, yes, the Passamaquoddy couldn't in, uh, by any reasonable way uh, <laughs> wage war, but they could reserve the prerogative when the United States went to war to say, hey, you have spoken for yourself, not for us. We will reserve the right to uh, declare war ourselves against a foreign nation, in this case, Japan, whoever it might be. Yeah, and I find it real interesting, uh, uh, Darren, you brought up the Peter V. Newell case and, and how uh, that, that court found that <clears throat> Passamaquoddy were not descendants of that tribe or whatever. <clears throat> so in the Proctor Report on, uh, I think it was page 32, somewhere around there, uh, it was interesting that they, uh, they cite the, the basis for the Passamaquoddy Indian Fund as being the 1794 treaty. So, and, and so if in fact Passamaquoddy were not a tribe, then why are they, you know, setting aside money in the Passamaquoddy Indian Fund reference that treaty? No, they call they call them the Passamaquoddy tribes throughout the case. They they say, I was just headed up, you know, that he is an Indian of the Passamaquoddy tribe, a tribe near Louis Island in the eastern part of the state. And then they're like, oh, but they're not a tribe. They just call them a, they call them a tribe all the way throughout. It is, if you read it, it is so absurd and and illogical that it's just it doesn't you know there's just no way of like accepting this as like. A, a serious legal consideration. It is simply a an ad hoc, you know, bullshit um, rendering. That's all. Yeah. That's all it is. May, yeah. may I say something about that? Uh, the, sure. um, it's important because 
this same argument was being prepared in the Maine Indian Land Claims Settlement Act by the state of Maine uh, expert witnesses. Uh, this, this expert witnesses for the state of Maine against the tribes was to argue that neither the Penobscot nor the Passamaquoddy constituted a tribe. Uh, and once you engage in what might be called bureaucratic genocide, in other words, you don't have to kill off the people, you simply kill, kill off the entity, saying it's no longer in existence, therefore we don't have to deal with them. But uh, I've seen the uh, reports uh, unpublished uh, in the uh, archives at the time when I was working for the Mi'kmaq, the Aristotle Band of Mi'kmaq uh, Federal Recognition, but it was very fascinating to see that uh, out of the Main State Museum, uh, both the historian and uh, the archaeologist, uh, together with um, a professor of the University of Maine in Orono, who was uh, killed actually in New Orleans outside of his hotel room, uh, Ronald Banks. But the argument was, in essence, to deconstruct, and I don't mean that in a postmodern way, to deconstruct the Penobscot as an entity and the Passamaquoddy as an entity as no longer existing or never having existed. That was another argument they are trying to, um, to, to make. And so when you basically deny your existence, not as a uh, person who has the right to vote, that's what the, we talk about in terms of imbeciles, but now we basically talk about an erasure of your existence as a political entity. And that becomes another maneuver in order to delegitimize the status of your opponent by saying you have no good standing. Yeah, no, th that's... That's precisely the case. I mean, I just, I, I personally, I think in terms of just mobilizing the readings of it, because it's, it just, it just feels like, um, <laughs> rereading it all these times, it's like, uh, they didn't even try that hard, you know what I'm saying? Nor did they have to, to create a fiction. Like, they could say, they're not a tribe, and then still call them a tribe, in that decision strikes me as some of the, that's the kind of power that this kind of court with its sort of, you know, racialist and other overtones had. Like they didn't even have to stop calling them a tribe to say they weren't a tribe. I mean, that's a really, to me, that's very fascinating because it's like, you, you don't even have to try, you can just contest it. And then people be like, oh, okay, that makes sense. That's the decision they, they can't hunt anymore because they're not a tribe. Oh, who? Oh, the Passamaquoddy tribe. They can't, they're not a tribe. So it's just, to me, like, I just, I, I know I'm returning to it, but it just, it, I think that's the power of it, you know, in a way too, that they didn't have to try that hard. Well, you're absolutely right. And the key thing is here, of course, and the term that, uh, that uh, uh, Darren as a fellow anthropologist knows the term, of course, is structural power, right? It's not just, uh, arbitrary is part of the structural power whereby the hegemony, the uh, the dominant society that issues the laws, uh, the dominant society that um, that appoints the judges, uh, the dominant society that legislates, and the dominant society that writes the books and teaches the schools, and that's how you get um, judges who are sitting in cases of vital significance to indigenous peoples who have not informed themselves about the basics of these indigenous peoples. And I find it astounding that you have a system uh, that is still in place whereby those structural issues are not questioned. And that has nothing to do with uh, 
issues like Black Lives Matter or Indians Lives Matter. It simply has to do with a multi-ethnic society that still has these residues of a white supremacist society that are still in place. And uh, the people who are admitted into these circles of power have been so indoctrinated often that they cannot even think outside of these structures of power. You have to really engage almost in an act of intellectual rebellion against these writings in order to escape from the way that these concepts are trying to shape your thinking about the past. And that's extremely difficult um, for anyone. And believe me, I've, I do that all the time uh, in my own work as a critical anthropologist, where you perpetually challenge the, um, the systemic representations of today by journalists or by legislators or by politicians, or the systemic way in which the past has been written and rewritten all the time. And you start saying, is this true? Why don't I hear that other voice? Why is it not, this not contested? Is there no one who said, hey, that's nonsense what you're saying here. Please de defend yourself on the merits of the facts. And I'm very worried, uh, if I may, about today, there's a lot of people who are agitating against uh, this structural power, but they don't do their homework. It is very important that when you go in combat against these kind of very powerful forces, that you're really extremely well equipped in terms of knowing what you're talking about. Um, and really have made the effort to go back to the sources and not just make it up as it often happens. People are um, challenging fantasies by other fantasies and that's not the way it works. You need to really uh, do your homework and it's extraordinarily uh, laborious. It's, it's very tedious. Well, Donna, you know it yourself. You've been now, uh, this is number eight in sovereignty. You thought it was gonna be a three and here we are on this. Oh, oh it's gonna be uh, more than eight. <laughs> <laughs> we know that. <laughs> well, but there it is, right? It's going to so be a while. Doing it. Yeah. And I respect that enormously. So. Darren. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I mean, I think we're probably going to start winding up. I, we I guess are right that, now. Okay. So I, so I think, yeah, so I think, yeah, just to, 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 to recap that, that, um, you know, that, that case, the, the, the state renewal case and, 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 you know, the moves, you know, throughout the, the, the second half of the 19th century into the early part of the 20th century are this increasing authority, um, bureaucratic authority of the Indian agent and, and sort of the, um, with the destruction of our natural resources, um, just the, the limitations, right, that, that we have to kind of exist outside of the Indian agent who had, you know, uh, some some resources to distribute within the tribe. I mean, you know, if you could support yourself and live a, a life, you know, without needing anything from that Indian agent, that would have been that meant they would have less power. But because of the destruction of natural resources in general and this limitation on our 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 lifestyles, um, this becomes harder and harder. And this is where the you know the enacting and 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 of the second class status and assimilation becomes so powerful and and uh, overwhelming and probably creating some of the darkest days for us as Wabanaki people. You know, sometime into the end of the nineteenth century, uh, first part of the twentieth century, where it just simply is you know our options for being ourselves, maintaining our connections to place and, and community become very difficult and very dramatically. Um, um, you know, 
part of what the state of Maine through the Indian agent system is trying to destroy. Harold. Yeah, very uh, short. Um, uh, Darren was mentioning contradictions, right? And it's a very important concept because there are a lot of incongruencies where you're saying, how is it possible that the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing and vice versa? And so you may have on the one hand philanthropy that is well meant. And at the same time, the resources out of which that philanthropy comes is it, uh, one of the most powerful capitalist um, uh, corporations in the world. I think about Rockefeller, I think about uh, Ford, right? We think about all these major foundations have great prestige um, as foundations, they do great work, but they come out of the fact that the revenues from these, from these foundations come from corporations and corporations are doing enormous harm to the natural environment, like in the case of uh, the Rockefellers with uh, oil. And so you see the same thing with the legislatures. A lot of people are well-meaning, but they don't realize that part of what they are doing is a reinforcement of this structural violence, right? That is perpetrated upon um, the people who are unable to defend themselves. Okay. So with that, we'll, we'll end. Uh, thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Donna Loring, and you've been listening to Webinacki Windows. I wanna thank Professor Harold Prince and Professor Darren Ranko for being on the show today. The music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his CD Dreamwalk. The engineers for our show are Jessica Lockhart of WMPG in Portland and John Mann of WERU. Tune in again next month for another Wabanaki Windows. <laughs>